Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey everybody out there, welcome back to Positively Wrestling. I am Tim Kennard, and of course, the heel to my baby face, the brain to my gorilla, the slick to my Rick, Stephen Davidson. <laughs> I don't know what that meant, but I didn't like it. I know, it's not, it didn't sound great. No. So, Ooh. But, hey, uh, we're talking about Royal Rumble. Yeah, 1990 Royal Rumble. Can, can we count down from 10, 28 times? Uh, I, I, I think that might cost us listeners. Oh, Please. Unless someone needs a 10 second or a 280 second timer. <laughs> well, <yeah>. it's possible. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, we are talking about the 1990 Royal Rumble, which took place January 21st, 1990 at the Orlando Arena in Orlando, Florida. Do they wrestle much in Orlando these days? Uh, maybe a little. Okay. I mean, just, just, just a bit. Just I think bad. they're wrestling starved in Orlando. Yeah, I don't think they get enough anymore. Uh, mm. I don't know. Florida in general just doesn't have any wrestling. No. Period. Now I don't know what's going on. Mm. But uh, of course we're kidding. But uh, <laughs> how you doing, buddy? I, I'm 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 doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm ready to talk about the World Rumble. This is uh, I was at the height of my fandom here, pretty much um, as a kid, and yeah, these are these were good days for me. Oh yeah, rewatching this man, just the nostalgia, seeing some of these guys. And we'll get more in depth here, especially when we talk about the actual Royal Rumble match, um, how crazy that was. When was the last time you watched this show? Oh, well, I actually just watched it prior to this recording. Before this, I probably had not seen this one in at least 10 to 15 years. Yeah. Probably the last time I watched it. Yeah, Um, it'd been a while for me, too. But I I watched and rewatched shows from these days so much when I was a kid that it didn't feel like it had been that long. But, yeah, it had been a while. It was good to see it again. Ah, yes, definitely. Uh, We're going to jump right in. Um, I will make a note, of course, this didn't air, but there was a pre-show match or a dark match, as we'll say, Mm -hmm. um, that the crowd got to enjoy that wasn't televised. And that was Paul Roma versus the Brooklyn Brawler. Roma picked up the win. He beat the brawler. No No real surprise there. Um, Doesn't have any real details about that. Doesn't even have a time listed for it. Yeah, they didn't air pre-show matches in 1990. That came along in the mid-90s. And yeah, so we never really got to see that match. Uh, We can pretty much imagine how it went. It's a Brooklyn brawler match. So yeah, uh, Lombardi was always out there just to to make his opponent look good. And so... um, yeah, I'd imagine he got very little offense in, maybe a few punches, and then uh, lost to a, a Paul Roma dropkick. Yep, and uh, and hey, props to the Brooklyn Brawler, man, because uh, even though he's not on the show proper, but w- what a guy. I mean, years and years and years with the WWE, um, even behind the scenes, I think, after mm-hmm. his uh, in-ring uh, career ended. But, uh, yeah, he was just always a staple, always there to make somebody look good. He, you know, he did the job. We, we've talked about that in some of our previous shows about the guys that give back. And they know that they are preparing the stars and getting other people over. And they're not about winning or losing. It's just about 
you know, furthering the business. And, and he was one of the pinnacles of that, I think, especially yeah. during this time. Yeah. And he, and he did it in whatever way they asked him to do it, whether it was as Steve Lombardi or as the Brooklyn brawler or as MVP or as kimchi seconding yeah. Kamala. Um, uh, uh, he played a doink. He was one of the doinks when they needed more doinks. So he, he, he did a lot of different things and definitely gave and gave and gave to, uh, to the, the business. Yeah. Um, but the uh, first proper match on this show uh, of course, well, actually, let's let's talk about our announce team uh, for this show because this is something I didn't remember. Uh, I remembered the body. Completely forgot that Tony Schiavone, <laughs> yeah, was the other announcer. Yeah, um, he spent a year in the WWF. That's why I got to know him. Mm-hmm. A lot of people probably don't know that, especially if you're a newer or even if you came along in the mid to late '90s. Everyone just assumed Schiavone was a WCW guy, um, and I was taken aback i was like holy crap as a because of how young he looked yeah <laughs> um and the banter between him and um uh uh the body was great with the uh the mickey mouse ears that jesse's wearing and he gives uh shivani the goofy hat yes it, that was it was just it was it was great it was classic jesse um being funny but heelish yeah. At the same time, talking about not letting Mickey and Goofy in. <laughs> Dom yes. had to, they didn't have tickets, so he didn't yes. let them in the building. Mickey's um, not that big of a star. Yeah. <laughs> but great stuff. But of course, yes, the Bushwhackers, Luke and Butch, taking on the fabulous Rougeaus, Jacques and Raymond, with Jimmy Hart, of course. Um, and the, uh, and we said we said the American wait no the, the all American boys the all they, American boys they they being the Rougeau brothers they were such a great heel team at this at this point they they didn't start out that way they started out as faces and then they turned heel and they adopted the all American boys as kind of their their nickname and their entrance music was one of my favorite entrance musics of all time just the, the characters were great um, they were very sarcastic in their love of America. They were almost mocking the way that Canadians see Americans. Uh, Some of the lyrics to their theme song, we don't like heavy metal. We don't like rock and roll. All we like to listen to is Barry Manilow. Um, (laughs) And then they go into like three lines of French. And then right after the French, they say, we love the USA. Like it's fantastic. (laughs) Love that entrance music. They never they never officially released it. I don't have that. I have, I've got hundreds of entrance musics and I don't have that one. And it's one of my favorites and I want it. I need it. Um, <laughs> but both of these teams were super over and that's how it was back in the day. The Bushwhackers were way over his faces. Um, the Rougeaus were way over his heels. This was character centric wrestling. It wasn't yes. about the moves they were doing. The fans were invested in the characters and they wanted to see who was going to win. It didn't matter how. Yeah, I, like you say, the, the character work, this is the pinnacle of it. This is the height of it in the 90s when, again, as we talk about doing the clown. 21, 21 days into the 90s. Yeah, 21 days into the 90s. <laughs> um, but yeah, where everybody was basically, they had a character and they stuck to that character. Um, and the Bushwhackers, I mean, how over these guys were for, yeah. you go back and you look and like if you took a fan today, who hadn't seen anything except for maybe the past five years of wrestling. And then you describe the bushwhackers to them. They'd be like, who are those jobbers? You know, yeah. they're, they're, they're not going to get it. Um, right. 
but yeah, the crowd just erupted. And of course, Luke and Butch marching down with the arms in tandem, licking each other. And the, and the fans, the fans wanted to be licked by the Bushwhackers. That's how over they were. <laughs> Parental Think discretion not advised because it wasn't that kind of lick. <laughs> no. no, at least not on camera. Yeah. Oh, hey. <laughs> anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> hey, we've heard stories. Not hey, about the bushwhackers, though. That's true. Um, Shawn Michaels and Sonny. Ooh. Sunny days, my friends. Yeah. Sunny days. Anyway. Uh, but yeah, the bushwhackers are great. I loved the bushwhackers just because they were so just out there. They were crazy. Yeah. Well, um, and. and the characters were over almost everyone on the main roster was over all the time. And a part of that was how the, the presentation was back in the days. Um, I, I have long held the belief and we can get into this in more detail another time. Cause I think it's something good to talk about um, that raw and nitro and the Monday night wars as exciting, as exciting as they were and as good as those shows have been and can still be uh, they hurt the overall wrestling business uh, because of the presentation. Um, we, we get the same matches all the time. And so mm-hmm. the matches and that's, I mean, it's not necessarily their fault. Like what are they supposed to do? Right. When they have all this TV time and the fans won't accept squash matches that are designed to get the actual talent over at the expense, at the expense of not someone who they're also trying to get over, but at the expense of someone whose job it is just to enhance the names on the roster. Mm -hmm. So enhancement talent matches. Uh, That was almost all we saw on television back then. And it allowed everyone to get regular wins Mm -hmm. and to get over and to brag about how good they were. So that when you got a match like the Bushwhackers versus the Rougeau brothers, maybe it's not the most important match you're going to see that night, but you're not really sure who's going to win. And so you're invested in it. Yeah. And we don't get that anymore. And it's, it's, it's tough. And it's responsible for a lot of the things that fans complain about today, but then they'd also complain if we went back to the enhancement matches. So man, eh, what are you going to do? Yeah. But uh, this match was fun. It was a lot of fun. You got the, the Rougeau's doing the classic heel work, you know, getting hit and say, Oh, I'm hurt. And they go hug each other and huddle. <laughs> and um, you got the bushwhackers biting them on the butt and then biting the ref on the butt. And I'm like, <laughs> right. how is this not a D it's the worst <laughs> officiated match in the history of the WWE. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fans wanted to be licked and the refs wanted to be bitten on the butt. Hey, it was a kinky time in the nineties, man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh my cousin, Sonny. No, oh, yep. <laughs> Need we say more? Do oh, we? Probably. If you want us to say more, I mean, we let us know. We we could do a special episode where there <laughs> we put the explicit tag on there and we go, you know, full tilt. But that that's another discussion. Um, but yeah, it's a great match. Went about thirteen and a half minutes. Uh, ended, of course, with the Bushwhackers picking up the win with as fun as it is one of the worst <laughs> tag team finishers I've ever seen. The battering ram. <laughs> the battering ram. So yeah. I'm just like it's it's it, it no, but still, hey. Yeah. They also the used match. the the, uh, the double knees to the stomach where they would lift the opponent up and drop them onto both of their knees. Ah, yes. um, they didn't use it in this match, but that was their more standard finish. And the the battering ram was generally a setup for that. And uh, yeah, I agree. The the battering ram not not very plausible as a finisher. There was almost no force behind it whatsoever. Uh, the double knee a little a little better. Maybe not the best, but better than the battering ram. But 
Yeah, I mean, it's the Bushwhackers, so, you know. The, the, the fans it. still had a fun time. They still popped huge for the, the victory of the Bushwhackers. So, hey, who are we to, to question? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, uh, of course, uh, shooting from that, we go backstage. Um, and what I, I miss in today's product, especially around Royal Rumble time, is the backstage hype promos where they start talking to, like, all the big names and, you know, talking about, what number you, like i wish they'd go back to the drawing of the numbers out of like a a lottery thing for the suspense and the drama that would be great of course we had uh the million dollar man and virgil are back there and uh teddy biasi was number 30 the previous year um and of course he ends up with the dreaded number one uh, this yeah. year the story um, being that he bought number 30 yes. in 1989 and was not able to buy his way out of number one in 1990. Yeah, they were just giving away what numbers people were getting too. Yeah, which it was is interesting because I like the mystery, but I, I do wish we would get that intrigue with them, you know, getting a piece of paper or something that tells them what number they are, and mm-hmm. you know, there being some shenanigans backstage. I think in other rumbles, people have, you know, stolen numbers and switched out with people and and stuff like that. Oh, and back back in 1992, it was still a new concept, relatively, three years old at this point. And it wasn't about surprise entries into the right. Rumble. You knew all 30 people who were going to be in it, and you were fine with it. Nobody was waiting for Bob Backlund to show up or for Bruno Sammartino to make a return or anything like that. We were happy with what we were getting. And I kind of miss that, too. Now it's almost uh, uh, most of what people talk about now is who's going to be a surprise entrant. Yeah, who's, and, who's the surprise this year? Yeah, and surprises can be fun, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have any at all. Um, but I do also kind of miss when it was less about who's not on the current roster and more about who is on the current roster. Um, and all these all these uh, backstage promos, the reason they did so many for the Royal Rumble is because back in 1990, they still had intermissions. Yeah, pay-per-views. And so the live crowd was up getting their drinks and going to the restroom, whatever. And uh, so they needed something for us watching on TV at home. And so mm-hmm. they just had a bunch of backstage promos with as many of the uh, as many of the people in the Rumble as they could squeeze in. Yeah. Um, of course, that led us to our, our next match. And we had Brutus the Barber Beefcake taking on the Genius in a singles match. Um, I mean, the Genius, man. Lanny Poffo. What is he? Brother, brother, brother of Macho Man. Mm-hmm. Um, but how brilliant was this character, though? Uh, the genius was always one of my favorite heels um, just because of, you know, he was smarter than everybody else. Or at least that was his claim to fame. Right. Um, but going up against Beefcake, which, hey, Beefcake, always a big Beefcake fan. Loved seeing people getting their hair cut. Yeah, he was and one they, of my favorites as a kid, for sure. That gimmick is great. Um, but yeah, so well-spoken in the genius's promos were very, almost overly enunciated. Um, but such a contrast between that character for Lanny and then Randy's character (laughs) for Savage. Very different. Very different. Um, Yeah. But very, very cool. Um, this match, uh, went about 11 minutes. Uh, so, I mean, not a short match by the standard of this show, um, of course, there aren't that many matches on the card, not like we see today where it's like there's, 
you know, two rumbles and eight other matches. <laughs> yeah. And they squeeze, of course, they go five hours sometimes now right. for the big for the big ones. Uh, this one was clocked in at like two hours and 41 minutes, something like mm-hmm. that uh, total. Uh, so this one, uh, not a clean finish. Ended up in a double disqualification. Um, but what were your thoughts on the match leading up to the finish? Well, it was it was set up basically as to, to be a, a dominant performance by Beefcake. Uh, the genius did proclaim to be smarter than everyone, but it never really resulted in him winning. Um, he, he, he was a glorified enhancement talent, and he was also the manager, so to speak, of Mr. Perfect. And so this was to set up Bruce Beefcake versus Mr. Perfect at WrestleMania. Mm. Um, and uh, so it did that. It did that with Mr. Perfect coming in at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the, the little things. And again, we talk about how today, you know, you've got people hitting Canadian destroyers and then their opponents are kicking out at two and uh, getting to the point where destroyers aren't even getting reactions from the AEW crowd anymore. And yeah. in this match, um, the genius went for a pin beefcake kicked out and threw him up in the air. And I, I don't think it was deliberate but when he came down he came down across the bottom rope because they were close to the ropes and he sold it yeah he sold it like oh not he didn't oversell it but he definitely sold it so that because it happened he he reacted to what happened and yeah there are people who would do that today but there are a lot who wouldn't do that today and that just that just stuck out to me i met the genius oh i met him after a wrestling challenge taping in Huntington, West Virginia, and that would be 1991. Okay. Um, and uh, my family and I went out to a little diner after that taping before we went back to the hotel, and he was there eating with somebody. I don't know, a friend. And so my dad said, yeah, go ahead and introduce yourself. And so I walked over, and he was very nice, and uh, he signed a little thing. I don't have the thing. I, it was just some rain. I, I wasn't prepared, Tim. Right. I didn't have my big eight by 10 binder. Um, you I should was, see uh, this guy now when he goes to <laughs> events or when they, yeah. when he could go to events. Right. You know, but the binders, the prep, the preparedness. <laughs> just in case. I'm, just I'm in ready. Case. But when I was 12, I wasn't ready. Um, <laughs> or 13, I guess. I wasn't ready. Um, but yeah, so he just signed something. But yeah, he was, he was very nice. And uh, that was cool. One of the first ones that I ever met. And it was totally just by chance. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, no, uh, great little, you know, as you say, basically an enhancement match, setting up perfect and beefcake for mania. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, these two guys, top of what they do. I mean, Landy, like you said, glorified enhancement talent. He was there to make people look good. He was there to get booed. He was there to be the bad guy. Uh, and beefcake perennial crowd favorite. <laughs> yeah. Um, way over, way, way over. over. Yes. Way over. Um, but, uh, then we go backstage for some more vignettes. Uh, we don't have to get into every single one unless there's one in particular you want to point out. Um, but, uh, next we had R- rugged Ronnie Garvin going against Greg the Hammer Valentine with Jimmy Hart in a submission match. This is actually outside of the Royal Rumble. This was the longest match on the card at almost 17 minutes, Uh, which is crazy when you think about today's product when 
you know, a marquee matchup or somebody had a submission match, it's going 30 probably at least now. At uh, least 20. I don't know that many hit the 30 mark, but yeah, they would usually go 25-ish. Yeah. Know? Um at least for the for the top names. I don't know. Garvin and Valentine, they were solid names, but they weren't main eventers. So I don't right. know if they would have gotten that much time. They got they got a good amount of time for, yeah. for the day. Yeah. But uh I mean I, I always uh was a fan of Greg Valentine. Um I, I loved watching him when he and I don't know if this was always in his career. Um and actually I cannot remember if it was during this match uh, since I just watched it, but the uh the knee brace thing. Mm-hmm. Was that at this time or that did that come later? Um, that that was at this time, the shin guard. The shin guard, yeah, that's yeah, right. The yeah, shin guard, yeah. It, it, yeah, it was during this this whole storyline that that came about, and then it kind of became a, a trademark of his. It, it wasn't something he started with. It, it came right. about, yeah, right around this time. Um, and so then Garvin went out and, and got one too. Because uh, uh, yes. he, he knew that Valentine was going to be using it yes. in this match. Um, I, I noticed attention to detail that I really liked here. The figure four leg lock, Tim. It was uh, Greg Valentine's trademark hold, mm-hmm. his finisher. And so often it's put on the wrong leg. Yep. Um, the figure four puts the most pressure on the straight leg. Yes. That's the leg that it, and so you see so many people, including, woo, Ric Flair. Yep work the left leg throughout the match because they're trained to work the left side of the body and then pick the left leg up and spin around it and apply the figure four so that the right leg is the one that's stretched. And uh, that wasn't the case in this match. No. Um, They, they were using the correct leg. Um, They were really, they understood the physics behind what they were doing. They, they knew uh, how these moves are supposed to work in real life. And it's such an important part of what these people do that too many overlook. And so, yeah, that definitely stood out to me. I always look for it when somebody's put on a figure four because I, I noticed it years ago and it started to irk me. It's one of my pet peeves. And so I always look whenever somebody puts on a figure four if they're putting it on the right leg. And these guys did well. All right, uh, hot take. Who's the master of the figure four in your opinion? Ever? Valentine or, or Flair? Between Valentine and Flair. Oh. Um, I mean, Flair never won a match with it until he got up in his career. <laughs> like, he, he beat Jericho with it. And oh, I think that might have been the first time he... I, I'm not going to swear it was the first time he ever won, but he rarely won. But, I mean, whatever. That's booking. Um, I would have to, to really go back and study Valentine's matches to see if he always put it on the right leg. Based on what I saw here and just what I've noticed in recent years, I would say Valentine paid more attention to what he was doing with it. Okay. Um, I'll give the nod to Valentine, but I'm not going to swear to it because I, I haven't seen enough of his matches lately. True. I, I just put you on the spot. I just, I just figured I would throw that out there just to see if you had an opinion. So do it. <laughs> but now, yeah, speaking, speaking of enhancement talent though, Ronnie Garvin, former NWA world champion, not long after this, by the end of the year, in fact, probably by the summer of 1990, he was an enhancement talent in the WWF. He was yeah. tag teaming with people like, you know, um, not the Brooklyn Brawler because the Brooklyn Brawler was a heel, um, but their their face, Jim Powers, yeah, um, and and people like that, and just losing, and he wasn't getting an entrance anymore. I don't know what happened. Uh, again, he wasn't 
one of their top names, but I thought he deserved better than that. And I was confused by it, even in 1990, how this former NWA world champion who had a pretty marquee match at this show yeah, and beat um, a, a longstanding name in the company yeah, suddenly was literally treated like he was enhancement and nothing more by the end of the year. And that is crazy to think about. Um, so who knows? Uh, that'd be very interesting to to hear some stories about, you know, behind the scenes, like what, what happened? Mm-hmm. Was it falling out with management? Was it his choice? Like, you know, my career only have a few years left and I'm going to help, you know, progress the business and do the job or like, who knows? But even in that case, you would think they would present him yeah. as somebody worth beating. And they, they didn't, he would already be in the ring and just get a passing announcement. Uh, yeah, it was bizarre. I hadn't seen anything quite like that before. Maybe he pissed somebody off. <laughs> Maybe it's yeah, possible. It was, it was uh, yeah. But yeah, so yeah, Garvin wins uh, via submission, of course, in that submission match. Um, and we get some more uh, backstage stuff. Now, is this where we had the uh, Sapphire Sherry? Yeah, this is yes. Brother Love with Sherry and Sapphire. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I know I'll let you handle this one. Yeah. Uh, well, Brother Love was Bruce Pritchard. I think most people know that by mm-hmm. now. Um, if, if you don't, Bruce Pritchard has my, my favorite podcast besides this one. Yes. Um, yes. Of course. Besides he has one. the number two wrestling podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So um, it, it's not for kids, definitely. But uh, if you aren't listening to something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard, you definitely should be. So he was Brother Love and what an iconic character that was. And then he's in there with Sensational Sherry and Sapphire, who was the second for Dusty Rhodes. Juanita Wright was her real name. And she was uh, literally a wrestling fan. She had never done any significant wrestling work before this. And she was just brought in because she was very much in every woman like Dusty Rhodes was in every Mm -hmm. man. And she was actually a big Dusty Rhodes fan too. So this was a huge deal for her when she was given this job. And uh, so they they were building a dusty savage rivalry here at this mm-hmm. point there was a mixed tag at wrestlemania this rivalry lasted through SummerSlam. we're talking january through august that's how it used to work and we didn't get tired of it yeah because they weren't interacting every week on television like they're forced to do now yeah well again as we said earlier it's because you have what almost 10 hours of programming to fill in a week. So yeah. you're going to get a lot of repeat. Yeah. And back then you didn't have that. I mean, you had what, like one weekly show at an hour. I think they had a two, two you had superstars and wrestling challenge. Okay. And then primetime wrestling would show the big stuff from those shows. And then they show stuff from like MSG house shows and Boston garden house shows, or maybe they show the dark matches from the tapings and stuff like that. So you, you maybe got about, three to four hours total a week. Yeah. But only two that were really breeding ground for angle advancement. Right. That uh, being superstars and challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely a different time. Plus you didn't have a pay-per-view every month. No. This is uh, back when you four, had four. four. This is yeah, back I mean, when it was just the big four. Yeah. Um, I almost said five, but King of the Ring didn't come around for another few years as a pay-per-view. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so y- 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 what a great feud Mach and uh, Dusty had. Uh, mm-hmm. I love this program. I love the match at Mania. I love it all the way through SummerSlam. Um, they had great chemistry uh, together. And so did for someone that got picked off the street, <laughs> essentially, yeah. 
to come in and back up Dusty Rhodes. And, you know, depending on who you talk to, that maybe it was a rib, <laughs> you know, who knows? Yeah. Uh, that you know that that's that's another discussion and that only dusty and vince know for sure um but but yeah but i would have loved to have been the fan pick to come and hang out and go on tour with the wrestlers that would have been so awesome yeah um so i envy i envy sapphire so much i'm Um, still available to be stacy kabler's second hey well hey true true i i if uh Mickey James ever needs a water boy. I'm available. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, water boy. Hey. <laughs> Just saying. As long as Nick Aldis doesn't come looking for me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, and, and you can't say enough about Sherry. We've talked about her before. Yep. Sherry is one of the greatest female character manager performers ever yeah in the business hands down um and i mean she was just great yeah again we we have gushed over sherry before in our women's retrospective um but yeah so this little back saying i love you i had to get one in there (laughs) (laughs) the brother he's talking to all of you yes i love all of you (laughs) um but yeah nice little thing segment getting a little bit more set up for, for what would be to come uh, mm-hmm. at mania um of course ended up in a little bit of a, a little brawl going yep. on as we expected um anything else you want to say about that little interaction uh no i just know that they they hit the house shows and they had a lot of mixed tags on the house shows and had a lot of fun with them bruce has talked about that on his show um and they experimented with it and learned a lot um by by practicing on the on the house shows and sherry helped sapphire a lot as well uh, come along she was tough on her mm-hmm. um but she definitely helped her a lot and so it's just it's fun to to hear how the people work together and grew together behind the behind the scenes so check out yeah. something to wrestle yeah and there's and that's another thing to to kind of point out this is of course back before you know the internet and the widespread knowledge of what happened at everything and every event so you could use house shows to test stuff out and you were only going to you know, maybe a couple thousand people got a little insight on what might be to come, but they don't think really anything of it at the time, you know, and you, you try that out, try see what works, give people a chance. And that's it, something that's missing, I think, today, because now you don't really have time to experiment, even when they were doing uh, house show tours uh, before the global pandemic. Because, again, because of the the rigorous schedule, you didn't really have time to to test stuff out without it getting out everywhere. You know, yeah. you you couldn't test out new concepts like a ladder match. And uh, and I, if I'm not mistaken, they even tried kind of like a rumble concept at a house show before it ever they ever put it to air. Yeah. So yeah, and house shows back then were the business. That's where they got the majority of yeah. their money it was centered around the house shows. So you would have matches like Hulk Hogan and earthquake at SummerSlam in 1990, go to a count out finish because they wanted people to come to the house shows to see the rematch where they got a more conclusive finish. Yeah. And man, things have changed. It's definitely not the case anymore, but yeah, back then in, in 1990, it was all about house shows. I went to a bunch. Yeah. Um, 
That, of course, led us into our last match before the Royal Rumble itself, and that was Jim Duggan versus the Big Boss Man <laughs> from Cobb County, Georgia. Uh, of course, he was accompanied by Slick Rick, or Slick. No, no Rick. <laughs> no Rick, just Slick. No Rick. Um, He's a Jive Soul brother. Uh, Speaking of theme songs, that is maybe my favorite of all time. Jive Soul Bro <laughs> by Slick. I still get down to that song when I hear it. And uh, yeah, that was that's another one. They, they, they did officially release it on the Pile Driver album back in the 80s, but uh, not since. So it's not available to download in that. That ah, makes me sad. Gotta hate those licensing hangups. Yeah. Make stuff not available anymore. Yeah. I hate that. Um, but, uh, this match, uh, it was a decent match. It was quick. It was only six minutes. <laughs> and I think that, that's, that's about as long as it should have been probably. Right. And, uh, and I'm sure it was, it's kind of the, Hey, let's get a little palate cleanser, a quick in and out before we get to the, uh, the, the main course, mm-hmm. as we'll say, yeah. um, Duggan, of course, defeating the big boss man, uh, via disqualification. Yeah. Another mm-hmm. non-finish, but you know what people didn't complain about back in the day? Non finishes. <laughs> no, no, they didn't. They, it, it was a victory. A victory was a victory. Win's uh, a win. Yeah, and uh, I mean, Bossman had a huge, huge program with Hulk Hogan uh, the year before this, and so he was he had credibility, and he was on the verge of a face turn here. By the time WrestleMania came around, just mm-hmm. a few months later, he was a face. So uh, that was about to happen. So they they didn't want to to give him a big decisive loss. But Jim Duggan was always, he wasn't the main event, but he was just below the main event. And he was always a really good face for someone when they're building them up to face Hulk Hogan. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times they'd go, they'd have to go through Duggan to get to Hogan. So you don't want him to lose to someone who's kind of not on that trajectory anymore either. Mm-hmm. So, um, so why have this match? Well, I don't know. Why not have this match? They wanted another yeah. match. So, two again, two people who are over. It's going to get a reaction. People, are, Duggan was so over. Um, every time he walked to the ring, it was filled with. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was filled with hoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I did not mean, yeah. Hey, hey, where's the Godfather at? <laughs> where's Kama at? Well, no way. At this point, where's Papa Shango at? <laughs> <laughs> i thought about how most people would not understand what i was going to mean when i said that um yeah if you don't know hacksaw jim duggan that's what he said he would he would walk to the ring oh. uh, yeah yeah that's what he would do oh and that's that's what i was going to mean by that and then i realized what people were going to think as i was about to say it <laughs> um, but yes he was over everybody was shouting ho is what i was trying to say that's no better nothing i say is fixing this tim <laughs> What would fix it in my mind is if we if we got uh Duggan cutting a godfather promo but saying <laughs> his version when he does ho every time you know come on board and ride the ho train. <laughs> <laughs> why didn't they ever I'm surprised they never moved. Yeah. yeah a, why did that never why? happen? Right. It, it should have. Yeah. Um <laughs> that's why they had that match. That is why. So that I would in in 2020, 30 years after the show aired, find myself in the position I just found myself. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> We're dying over here. <laughs> oh, that was awesome. That was awesome. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, you're right. Um, uh, trying to get back on track here. Uh, Duggan was like the gatekeeper for Hogan. That's a good yeah. thing that you bring up there. He was that guy. Uh, I hadn't really thought about it before, but yeah, he was the one that typically was the, uh, if you want to get to Hogan, you had to go through Duggan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, this is back in the day and people, you know, they criticized John Cena years ago about being, you know, the five moves of doom, the six moves of doom. You go back and watch these matches. These guys don't have more than about five or six moves in them anyway. No, no. But, but the way they tell the story, it's, it was so much different. And again, I, and I'll, I'll be the first person to admit, I hated on John Cena as well. More so, I didn't like the push he was getting. Yeah, the booking could be an issue. Sometimes. And that kind of tainted me. And I even did some of the, you know, oh, it's the six moves of doom. But that wasn't his fault. Um, that was, he wasn't the one doing the booking. So he's a tremendous performer. And, you know, that was just my, one of my weak moments as a fan <laughs> <laughs> when I was toxic. <laughs> But I cleanse myself, and it's you fine. did, you did, you did. Um, you're, you're reformed. But uh, but yeah, so they they knew how to tell the story, and the story was so much more important back then, um, because again, compared to today's matches, when you talk about the athleticism or how many different moves or destroyers and whatever super kicks you can get in there, um, you know, you might got you might have got ten different moves in a match. <laughs> Yeah. And depending on who's it. in there. Yeah. yeah, depending on who's in there, of course. But yeah. especially when you're talking about your bigger powerhouse guys. Yeah. Um, but uh but, but the yeah. moves mattered. They mattered. Yeah. And, and and you know, when when Duggan hit that three-point stance and connected with the clothesline, yeah, it was over. Off a running clothesline, it was over. And we bought it because it was sold to us that way. Um, it was back then it wasn't about people kicking out of a bunch of finishers. It was about people trying to avoid the finishers because once the finisher was hit, unless you were in there with Hogan and maybe warrior um, it was done. Yeah. And um, I I do see some effort trying to get back to that these days from some people, but still with, with a lot, it's about kicking out of the finishers and all that does is if you do it too much, uh, it, it just hurts the credibility of, of the talent. Yeah. And again, as we, talked about vacuum wrestling uh before is sometimes you watch a match nowadays and like you know somebody hits a finish but you know it's not over yeah like you know oh here's the kick out yeah it's like here's gonna be the kick out of the finisher when it should be the end of the match yeah um but but again another discussion for another time but uh yeah so a fun little match here did what it needed to do let's get to the main course the big one, this is one we're going to talk the most about. Of course, it is the Royal Rumble match itself. Of course, we know who was number one. That is the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. And who, 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 who would be number two in this match? It was my man with his parrot, Coco B. Where, baby? I always, I was a big Coco fan. He was just fun and animated. He was again, and he, and he made people look good. Yeah, another one of those who was pretty much a glorified enhancement talent. Mm-hmm. They would put him in there with real enhancement talent to get him wins, so that he didn't completely lack credibility. Right, but he rarely beat anyone who was an actual name. Yeah, um, 
and they went off to the races here with this match. And um, of course, DiBiase eliminates Coco after just a, I think right before the next person comes out, which if I remember is Janetti. Mm-hmm. I actually don't have the list of entrants. I'm doing a lot of this from memory. So chime in whenever. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, we yeah. don't need to go through all of them. Oh, but. yeah, yeah, yeah. But Janetti comes out next. And they kind of get this set up where, at least for the first couple of guys, that DiBiase's handling him, he's getting him out of there, and just waiting on the next guy. And then, of course, he gets to number, what would be number four, and here comes Jake the Snake Roberts. And now we really get going with this rumble. Um, and, man, you talk about how moves were more impactful. That short arm clothesline that Jake did just had so much impact. You just believed, oh, he, he could pin somebody after that. Mm-hmm. He didn't, but you thought he could. <laughs> right. And it, um, it definitely sold the, the the idea that they would be incapacitated enough to fall victim to the DDT. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, let you chime in with. Uh, well, here, one thing to take note of is this is the first Royal Rumble where they experimented with using entrance music for the people as they came down to the ring. Um, now here they only did it through Jake. So they stopped after number four and then everybody after number four, nobody after number four, after Jake had entrance music when they came down, but this was the first time that they did it for anybody beyond the first two. And I think they did it to get that pop when Jake came to the mm-hmm. ring. Cause he, he and DiBiase were starting a thing, starting a program here. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's why they did it, but uh, yeah, this was the first, the first time. And I loved it. I'd wanted them to do it since they started the rumble and I thought yeah, I was disappointed as a kid when nobody after Jake had their entrance music play because I thought it was the coolest thing. They didn't do it again until 1996. It took them six years after this to come to the wow. realization that it adds a lot to to the entrances in these rumbles. Yeah, I, I like, and I didn't even realize that even in watching, I wasn't even paying attention. You know, it's like because I'm so used to it being there, mm-hmm. and because I did hear it for the first couple people that came out, I was just like, oh, I just. I must have been paying attention to something else when the music played. I just didn't hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're right. No, it was complete silence when they came out after mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, but uh, talking about over, let's talk about the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, and talk about being hated, but in uh, a good way. Yeah. And hearing the crowd pop when it even went just a hint of, oh, he might go over the top rope. Mm-hmm. And people just got all so amped. Um, and then the pop that Jake got was tremendous, yeah. huge to see him get in there and the two of them to square off. Um, but yeah, again, the crowd in this match is so entertaining. Well, and something else to, to realize is this was before the days when the winner got a title shot at WrestleMania. So there was really nothing formally at stake here. And that might make it sound less interesting, but, Kind of not because anybody could win. Now, you know, that, you know, uh, Montez Ford is not going to win the Royal Rumble. Yeah. Montez Ford is not getting a title shot at WrestleMania. We know that Montez Ford could have won the Royal Rumble in 1990. Um, Hogan won this Rumble, but it was actually kind of an upset because Hogan didn't often win battle Royals. Yeah. Anything like a battle Royal. In fact, I remember my dad, when we were watching this live, sitting there, and he, I remember hearing him say, Hogan's not going to win. He never wins things like this. And I kind of thought he was right. Yeah. Because um, Hogan rarely won stuff like this. So 
having not having that stipulation really added to the suspense and um yeah so I, i'm not saying they should get rid of it but it it did it being the stipulation i'm not saying they should get rid of it today but it did add something before they started using that yes um and i don't know did they say something i'm sure that i'm I, I can't remember if they mentioned something about maybe there's a cash prize. You know, they, they, they hyped up that winning it was important, but not like you say, no title shot, nothing like yeah, that. No specific prize or anything. It's certainly bragging rights and, yeah. you know, something, something good to have on your resume, but there was nothing formal. Um, did you notice who one of the referees was on the outside? Uh... Nobody stood out to you. Not that I was paying attention to. Shane McMahon, one of the referees on the outside of this match. Was it really? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So if, if anybody goes back to watch, look for a very young Shane yes. McMahon on the outside of the ring. Wow. Uh, making, making a little cameo here. Um, the, the names in this match, too. I rewatched it, I don't know, a week or two ago. And um, I remembered everyone who was in it being in it. But I didn't remember, like, at one point, there were only four people in the ring. And those four people were Rowdy Roddy Piper, mm-hmm. Macho Man Randy Savage, Jake the Snake Roberts, and the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. Holy crap. And then two entrants later, here comes Brett the Hitman Hart. Mm-hmm. Two after that, here comes Dusty Rhodes. Yep. And then we got Andre the Giant. Like, holy crap. People talk about 1992. This one was stacked, man. Yeah, no, incredibly stacked. Uh, and speaking of Andre, I mean, and again, this this speaks to the time and the match and how things were over. Andre's one is like, man, who's going to get him out? Took two guys. Demolition. Yeah. Demolition. Oh, Demolition's one of my all-time favorite tag teams. Yeah. I saw them as a Road Warrior ripoff, but I, I wasn't big into NWA. I knew who everybody was outside of WWF because of the after mags, the bill after magazines pro wrestling illustrated wrestling superstars. So I knew who everybody was. Um, but to me, WWF was where it was at. Yeah. And so I was always going to lean towards WWF. So for me, it was demolition, not those road warrior guys. What? Yeah. I mean, I knew, um, I knew demolition before I knew the road Warriors. the same boat. I was into the WWE product and not till yeah. after did I find out about the road warriors and being kind of similar yeah um and yeah i just thought they were great and i they were were they ripoffs i mean they they all had face paint and they all had spikes i guess but i didn't find their characters to be that similar nor their execution yeah their in-ring um, work was definitely not similar yeah um so yeah and of course that elimination was setting up uh demolition versus andre the giant and haku mm-hmm. um well they actually had an ongoing rivalry which culminated at wrestlemania 6 which was andre the giants last match Uh, Um, yes so yeah so lots of storytelling opportunities in a royal rumble and this one made good use of those it's like you take a match with 30 guys into it and you're like well hey we can advance a storyline in 15 different areas here right and that was awesome and you don't really again like we say you don't really get that now you Mm -hmm. might get a hint of it here a callback or, you know, Oh, you know, there's somebody's got a feud. So they go after each other, but it doesn't happen like it used to. And even, it even happened more, you know, five, 10 years ago. Um, like with undertaker and Michaels, Shawn Michaels and the undertaker, but, mm-hmm. um, it just doesn't 
happen like they, you know, it's not a, as much of a setup now, except for the winner facing the champion of their choosing. Mm-hmm. But again, as you said, based on who's champion, you can usually narrow down between two or three people that probably going to win. Yeah. And sometimes you just outright know. Yeah. You just outright know what's going to happen. It's a little harder now that there are two champions. Yes. Um, but still, uh, I love the unpredictability that there was back in the day. I mean, in 1988, Hexel Jim Duggan won. He won the first Royal Rumble. Yeah. And Big John Studd in 1989. And you, you would never see anything like that today. And I mean, I saw in 88, we probably had one of the biggest hoes in the ring uh, when he won. Uh- <laughs> okay. So this is going to follow me around the rest of my life. Yep. <laughs> Every show going forward. Um- oh, lovely. <laughs> Just wait till the introductions for the next show. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, you got Andre getting eliminated by demolition. Like you said, the the, the amount of talent in this ring, like because Bret Hart's out number eight, and it was kind of funny. Thank God for Jesse the Body Ventura because Bret gets eliminated. You almost can't even see it. Yeah, it's in the back because they're focused on Andre. Yeah. Uh, and then luckily Ventura comes back and says, Oh yeah, Bret Hart got eliminated. You know, everybody was so focused on Andre that he's, you know, so he he helped still put some shine on Brett's name. <laughs> yeah. And and to tell that story too. Yeah. To, I mean, he he was doing his job there and doing it very well, letting letting us know what we didn't see and that he did. So Yeah. Yeah. Um and of course, uh a little bit further down, uh, we get other people like uh Martel and and Santana, uh everybody, and I think I think uh, Ventura always called him Chico Santana. Yeah. Instead of Tito. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Chico Santana. Um, yeah. Very, very heelish. I don't know if that would fly today. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think as a heel, it would be fine. I wouldn't want yeah. a face to do it. But as a heel, you're supposed to do stuff that makes you a jerk. Like, yeah. It, it's not presented as being something good. Right. And it wasn't then either. True. Um, but you're right. I don't know that it would quite fly today uh, just because it kind of toes that line of insensitivity. But um, but uh, we also had uh, the warrior come out. Oh, of all this stuff. Oh, and the crowd. Oh. I mean, you could even watching it, you can almost see the camera shaking. Yeah, because um, the warrior you talk about being over uh, if if Hogan's number one, Warrior's definitely number two. Or yeah. if you think Warrior's number one, Hogan is definitely number two. It's like those two guys. Yeah. You talk about big pops. Well, uh, and I've, I've talked about this moment before on the show, and this was one of my favorite moments ever. Hogan and Warrior at this point had never even shared the screen together. Yeah. They had never been seen together on television ever. And it had always been something in the back of our minds. What if Hogan and the warrior met up and here it happened. Watch the crowd. I don't know if you were watching the crowd, but they, they ended up eliminating everyone else in there with them. And it comes down to just the two of them. They for, turn for and they minute. see each other. And it's yeah. like, you get that stare. And then Hogan's like, you know, he kind of pats the shoulder. And he's like, all right, we're going to do this. Yeah. And the crowd, uh, there were, hands were over mouths yeah they were standing up like what is about to happen heenan was still out there and he was riveted um 
he didn't have any guys. He still had guys coming. Rick Rude was coming and he was right. part of the Heenan family. So he was staying out there probably for that reason. But he 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 was definitely selling the importance of the moment. I, I got goosebumps watching it. 30 years later, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. It was such... I cannot communicate how big of a moment that was when you were a wrestling fan in 1990. I mean, the shock on the crowd um, at getting to see this moment and the awe that they were in. I mean, this is Lesnar pinning the undertaker type shock and awe. Like, what do we, what are we seeing right now? Like what, what's going on? Um, It's fine. It's, it's happened. Oh my God. It's happening. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was so crazy, so yeah, crazy. Because Undertaker losing to Lesnar for most people was something they didn't want to see. This was something everyone wanted yes. to see. So it was a, it was a. You're you're right in the sense that it was as I don't know, if shocking is the word, but it was definitely as riveting. Yeah. Um, but it was in a positive way. Yes. Universally. Um, and. Yeah, just absolutely one of my favorite moments in wrestling history. I still remember it and get chills. Yeah, and I mean, they go at it. You know, we get a few, uh, you know, bouncing off the ropes, shoulder tackles, but nobody goes down. Nobody moves, Jesse and, says. Yeah, and then they do, and this always confused me, the crisscross. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm like, uh, uh, okay, whatever. <laughs> but Hogan drops down, and, and uh, he hops over and comes back. And they double clothesline each other. Yeah. Um, so nobody gets the advantage. Yeah. So when you're getting to WrestleMania six, nobody's really shown any sort of physical superiority over the other one. Because even though Hogan is instrumental in Warrior getting eliminated in mm-hmm. a few minutes, it's because two other people, I think it was perfect. It was rude. And was it Hercules? Uh, Hercules was in there. Haku. Yeah, because Perfect wasn't out yet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Haku and um, Rick Rude. Rick Rude. Um, and they're trying to get Warrior out. And then Hogan comes up and kind of hits both of them, but it causes Warrior to go over. Right. Um, so, yeah. But it wasn't like he elimin- He did eliminate Warrior technically. Mm-hmm. And they made points to, you know, Jesse definitely made lots of mentions. Oh, you know, he, he took advantage when earlier warrior was saving hogan from a similar situation um but but yeah that way they could protect for when we got to wrestlemania 6 and and it was just even footing Uh, i think you see a lot of in these royal rumbles then and today is people trying to eliminate people while also obviously holding them in (laughs) (laughs) so that they don't fall over the top sometimes okay i'm with you like if if you're trying to eliminate in quotes the eventual winner or someone that has a major spot coming up yeah but if you're trying to eliminate the honky-tonk man who has no major part in this rumble at all and he happens to go over what's the big deal yeah (laughs) um so yeah i think they try a little too hard to keep some people from falling out but yeah it's pretty easy to spot that and um i guess not everybody does it but a lot of them and yeah you, you see that when you look for it well, and actually, and in, and in, in throwing back, taking it back a few minutes, when Earthquake came out, and everybody was like, "How are we getting this guy out?" Because uh, he's probably the next biggest guy outside of Andre. Yeah, definitely. Um, in the mass department, and you know, it took what five five guys, I think, all helping out because it was heels mm-hmm. and faces all getting together. Right. 
Right. Uh, except for Dino Bravo, who was trying to save him. <laughs> right. Because they're, they're buddies. Because they were buddies. But, um, but yeah. So, uh, you don't, again, uh, things that we don't really see a lot now. Um, you know, we'll see it here and there. Like it happened within the Women's Rumble with Nia. Mm-hmm. They did that, a similar spot. And it happens very sparingly. Um, but of course, we don't have as many big contenders like that right uh i mean we have a few here and there but um you know big show isn't he comes out every once in a while Mm -hmm. he'll sometimes show up for a rumble but we don't have many people worthy of that spot right um but i really liked it in this one Mm -hmm. but of course we go down we get down to our i think the final three if i'm not mistaken were perfect rude hogan uh yes and mr perfect was number 30 and number 30 yes now at this point mr perfect was still undefeated Uh in singles competition and they they managed to find a way to allow him to still claim some form of perfection despite not winning this match in the 1989 rumble he had the longest time in the match so he had that and then in the 1990 rumble here he drew number 30 so i thought it was very clever of them to always find something to give him in these matches, even though he didn't win. Yeah. Just to make it look like he got a win, but it wasn't like the official win. Like, right. Hey, but he drew number 30. That's, yeah. you know, that's practically winning. Um, yeah. The perfect number, the perfect number. Um, but and yeah, he told us about it ahead of time too. So we knew who number one was mm-hmm. and we knew who number 30 was. Yeah. And again, yeah. no surprise. There were right. no surprises back then. Um I mean, I like the surprises nowadays, but I think they they rely on them too much. Yeah, for advertising. So it's just like you know, oh, we're going to tell you everybody except for like ten people. That way, you have to really guess. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think I think the fans were relying on them too much for their enjoyment too. That's true. Yeah, that's true. They wouldn't um, do it if it wasn't something the fans were really getting into and expecting. Right. 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 So when we get them, it's cool. But I. I I I don't like to lean on them. Right. Um, they did a spot here when uh, Rude is eliminated. Yes. Where um, Mr. Perfect's on the apron. He's been knocked to the apron. It's down to Rude, Perfect, and Hogan. And uh, Perfect's on the apron, and uh, Hogan Irish whips Rude into the ropes. And Mr. Perfect is getting up as he does this and pulls the rope down, and Rude goes over the top and is eliminated. Uh, I mentioned before about the only time I've seen a rope pull down spot that was convincing was in a match with Io Shirai and uh, Kairi Hojo. Mm-hmm. Um, not true. This one was convincing. This, one, this was a good one. Yeah, no, it really was because uh, Perfect had gone through the middle rope. So he wasn't really in danger of being eliminated. Mm-hmm. But it just so happened to be at the same time that Hogan is whipping uh, Rude towards that uh, side of the ring. And like I say, it looks like you know, Perfect's just trying to help himself up. And it happens at perfect timing, timing to where Rude yep. goes over. Um, the timing was great. And the amount that he pulled the rope down was great, yes. too. Because a lot of times they don't pull it down enough. And so the person kind of has to throw themselves over the top. And but the, not, you, not here. You totally believe it was low enough mm-hmm. to where you're like, okay, his momentum would make him go right over that. Yeah. But um, it wasn't so low that it seemed unnatural for Mr. Perfect to be pulling it. It was really well done. Yes, but it's then followed by one of, even back then, 
the spots that always confuse the crap out of me. I think I know where you're going with this, but go ahead. Yeah, so uh, Perfect's outside, Hogan's inside, and um, I guess once Hogan grabs the rope, it's magnetized to Perfect's hands. Oh, so not when where Hogan I you were going. Okay. whips him back, he just he shakes the rope, and that has enough momentum to make Perfect flip back into the ring. He slingshots him into the Slings- ring. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a little magic in it, a little voodoo, a little, little Hogan voodoo. Little, little, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. I thought you were going to uh, talk about Mr. Perfect going the perfect plex in a Royal Rumble where pins don't count. No, no, no. Uh, actually, I, I'm. Hey, hit your finisher. We can yeah. the guy. That's fine. Yeah. Um, his just so happens to have a pinning combination to his, but right. I still think it makes sense that he tried to hit his finisher. Yeah, it would still do damage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, no, the, 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 the slingshot back into the ring. That's always one I've been like that just, mm. <laughs> I can't remember the last time we've seen that. I don't think they do that anymore. No, no. I think this was something exclusively that happened like back in the day. Yeah. I don't think we saw that once we got to attitude era, maybe even before that, maybe just, yeah. Back right before the attitude era really took off. But like when Brett was kind of yeah. leading the company yeah. around that time, you didn't see that slingshot spot back into the ring anymore. Yeah. Um, Plenty of slingshots outside the ring by the, you know, grabbing the leg and doing that. Right. The slingshot. But, um, but yeah, that that's my one gripe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, if that's your one, then it's a pretty good, it's, it's a pretty good show. Pretty good. Yeah. Match. No. Yeah. Um, and of course Hogan wins, eliminates Mr. Perfect um, and wins the 90 rumble. And yeah, I mean, well, this was a good show. This is a great show, actually. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of fun. This is a solid, solid pay per view from top to bottom. Um, there really is not anything I sit there and say, "Yeah, we could have done without that," or you know, right. that had no place here. It was all great. Yeah. Um, and I think back in those times, you didn't have a lot of matches where you were just like, "I don't care about this." Everything no. had a purpose, and yeah, and everybody was over. Yeah, and it didn't feel like anything was filler. Hmm. like it's oh they're doing this just because they got to fill another 30 minutes on this four hour pay-per-view <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh yeah. here's the here's these pre-show matches that there's two pre-show matches that we got to just get these guys a paycheck mm. right and, right hey and i'm not taking anything away from those performers get paid do what you got to do i'm just saying it was handled so much differently back then it was for better yes. or for worse um but yeah so uh what are your your final takeaways from the 1990 Royal Rumble. Um, yeah, I, I loved it. I uh, loved it then. And I loved it now. And um, just so many big names in that rumble match and nobody did double duty either. If they were on the undercard, they were not in the rumble. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they had enough talent to fill the card out, to fill the match out, um, but not too much where you were like, Hey, why wasn't so-and-so in this rumble? Where was, you know, where was this guy? Um, so they had the perfect amount of talent for for what they were doing at the time. And uh, they used them all well. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, they, they were they were hitting on all cylinders here, I thought. Yeah, I agree uh, totally. And as we're, I'm going to try and incorporate this whenever we do retro reviews. So you'll know it's coming next time. Um, and But I, I know what your answer, at least I'm, 99.9% sure I know what your answer is going to be. It's going to be the same as mine is what is the one thing you loved most 
about this pay-per-view oh hogan warrior yes hands yeah. down hogan warrior uh that is the the pinnacle moment of this show um if you don't go back and watch the whole thing at least go back and watch the rumble if you're not going to watch the whole match at least watch that interaction yeah between hogan and warrior the crowd yes everything and also just from a pop standpoint because i know i bring up you know crowd reaction when dibiase got eliminated that was one of the biggest pops of the night too yeah, he. I mean, he was a believable winner. They thought he may win this match coming in at number one, because I, I would have bought it. Yeah, I would not have questioned it one bit. He he always seemed to find a way to get what he wanted, mm-hmm. and so yeah, would not have surprised me at all. So and and them either, and so they were glad to see him go because they didn't want him to win. They thought he might. Yep. But uh, yeah, so that's going to do it for us on this retro review of the 1990 Royal Rumble. Um, we hope you've had fun. Uh, thanks for tuning in uh, again like share subscribe uh give us a review everything spread it tell your friends you know people that like wrestling if you know someone who knows someone who likes wrestling grapevine it anything listen, listen to us while your friends are with you yes First, tie them to a chair a steel chair okay. because it's wrestling yes and and force them to listen to us strap they, them And then stop it before you get to this part where I'm telling you to do it. That way you, we have plausible deniability Uh, (laughs) or a folding table and time to that too. Um, Trash cans. I mean, you can use all kinds of items. (laughs) Just saying. Yeah. 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 Funny. Um, funny. All easily available. Yes. 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 Uh, But yeah, join us uh, for more retro reviews. I'm sure at some point we will talk about the biggest hoes in the ring of all time. Uh, (laughs) I'm Tim Kennard, my friend, Stephen Davidson. Thank you for joining us on this very special episode of Positively Wrestling. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at PlusWrestleCast. That's P-L-U-S-W-R-E-S-T-L-E-C-A-S-T. On Twitter, at Plus WrestleCast. You can also find me, at Timothy K. And Steven, at Bizarro Doom. Also, search for us on Facebook by just typing in Positively Wrestling. We hope you enjoy the show and we'll tune back in for many, many weeks to come. Thanks for listening to Positively Wrestling. <laughs>